And I invite you to give your attention to God's word as we'll be turning together today to look at John chapter 17. And we've been considering our own church's brief statement of faith, which is a summary of a greater statement of faith that you'll find in the Westminster Confession of Faith together with larger and shorter catechisms. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is a wonderful document that was forged in the 1600s. But in order to have a summary, which is altogether fitting, we, we do have a brief summary of our own so that you can know a bit about who we are and what we believe and what we're about and can even share that with others. And as we've considered various parts of this, we're looking now together under our beliefs. Now, I just want to remind you that everything is about glorifying God, Right? not about preachers making a name for themselves. I remember seeing years ago a church had a billboard, an advertisement, and it showed a, a very nice-looking gentleman, preacher, who had a nice head full of hair. And it's not that I was the least bit jealous of that photograph at all. But it was one of those uh, pictures where he was striking one of those preacher poses, you know, some, something like that. Looked very compelling. And it had at the bottom of it what looked like a Surgeon General's warning that you would see on a pack of cigarettes. And it said, warning, hearing this man preach can change your life. And I thought, well, that's all well and good, but I don't think it's preachers that change people's lives. It's the grace of God that does that. And so as a congregation, I pray it remains the case that our chief end and aim is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. So everything we do is in line of that. And as we talked about the other things today, we come to consider what we believe, what we know, why we believe what we believe. Because everything that we say has to be anchored in some source. I mean, after all, why is it that we would identify ourselves as a community of believers giving or given to loving and worshiping God, loving and serving our neighbor, or teaching the good news of Jesus Christ, encouraging people in their faith, and equipping them to go into the world to meet spiritual and physical needs. How do we know that we're supposed to be about that? How do we know any of the things that we place under our beliefs? It is because, ultimately, God has revealed truth to us in his word. So let's look together at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And then we'll consider more of this together. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now that they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, 
and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. As the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so two years ago, Ligonier Ministries conducted its survey that it does every two years, asking people some very important questions. And they asked a group of people who identify themselves as evangelicals. Now, as a church, we are an evangelical church. Remember, the word evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel. We are about the gospel. We are focused on it. So it's not a political term. That's what you would be given to understand by the news media. Evangelical is not a political term. It is an identification by which we identify ourselves as those who have the gospel at the center of our worship and lives. And so Ligoniers sought to get an understanding of what people believe who consider themselves to be evangelicals. Now, in order to be considered that, they would have to affirm the following statements, that the Bible is the authority for what I believe. Secondly, that it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thirdly, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And then finally, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So those people who thus identify in that way should have a pretty good idea of how to answer some very important questions. For example, to be able to affirm the following statements. One of those is, Jesus was a great teacher. But he was not God. Now, you would think, given the criteria, that there would be a 100% on that one, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Well, there should be a 0% on that, right? I wanted to see if you were listening. I was hoping somebody would moan and say, wait a minute, preacher. It's not that I want to ask you a trick question. I was just hoping for somebody to go, oh, I was at a meeting one time, and a preacher was up telling the story, and he said in his congregation, he had one man who was always amening everything he said. He said he could hardly get out a word. The guy was, amen, amen, preacher, amen. And he said, uh, finally, he just thought, this guy's not listening to me. He's just saying this like a reflex, like getting struck by that little rubber tomahawk at the doctor's office on your knee. You know, every time he'd say something, is, sorry, doctor, I don't know what you call that thing. That's my name for it. And so... In the midst of his preaching, the guy was going, amen, amen. And finally, the, the preacher just threw out some statement of heresy, you know. And that guy was, amen, amen. Uh-uh. <laughs> he was listening. So those who affirm the tenets of the Christian faith should not agree that while Jesus was a great teacher, he was not God. That ought to be a zero percent. But 32 percent agreed. Fifty-six percent agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus was not created. He's always existed. Fifty-one percent agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. The Holy Spirit is given a pronoun in Scripture. He, him, his, consistently throughout because he is a person. He can be sinned against. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. 80% agree 
God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's reassuring. But that means 20% believe something else. And then 23% agree that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 23%. Now, again, the majority believe something helpful, but then there's that. We need to know what we believe. Francis Schaeffer said when he spoke at Notre Dame in April of 1981, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. As Jesus prays here, he, of course, is facing the cross. The hours are counting down till he will be before the Sanhedrin and the other authorities in those illegal trials. He knows that agony awaits him. And as has been his practice throughout his earthly life, he spends time in prayer. Now, we don't know the vast majority of Jesus' prayers. We are told repeatedly how that he would arise way before dawn and seek his father in prayer. He would spend a whole night in prayer. And oh, how we would like to know what he prayed. But we don't have those words recorded. We do, however, have some words recorded that he uttered in prayer. And among them are these in John chapter 17. So that in and of itself should cause us to pay much attention to this. Lifting his eyes to heaven, he calls upon the one whom he has loved for all eternity. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He's facing the cross. He's facing that agonizing death when iron spikes will be driven through his hands and feet as he will have faced the scourging of the Roman lectors, which they will beat him within an inch of his life before he even faces the cross. And he will suffer the agony of hell itself for the sake of those who believe in him and would come to believe in him all of that is before him and yet he says glorify your son because he knows that glory comes by way of that suffering you and i shall know glory if we trust in jesus christ because he has purchased it for us glory comes by way of suffering but our glory comes by way of his suffering his agony and we shall experience that in fullness all because of him but how do we know about this how do we know who Jesus is? How do we know about his suffering and his resurrection? How do we know about heaven and everlasting life? It is because God has revealed it to us. And so we see and discern here that the knowledge of God and of his son is central to all of life. And it is essential for eternal life. Jesus is not optional. I've got a, a good friend in ministry who uh, has spent most of his adult life being extremely overweight. And over the last year, he has uh, been able to lose a significant amount of weight. And he, he's all excited now because he can do things like ride a roller coaster. And it's unfortunate. I could ride a roller coaster, but now I find at this stage of life, I get so motion sick that I can fit in the car, but I don't want to be in one. But something else that Matt has done is he's, 
he has uh, been skydiving. I said, why would you want to go to all that trouble that you've been through to lose weight and then jump out of a perfectly good airplane? That does not make sense at all. And he's getting ready to do it again. But you know, as he does that, one thing that's essential for his survival is a parachute. Somebody said a lot of things in life are like a parachute. You only need it once, but when you need it, you need it. It's essential. The knowledge of God and of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is central for life, essential for eternal life. And as I said, that knowledge is only possible because God has revealed it. Now, if we look at creation, you're looking at beautiful scenery behind me. I can see some of you wondering sometimes. You know, sermon gets to the point, well, it's okay, preacher, but it's awfully nice out there. We have a beautiful creation, and it bears testimony to God's existence. Just like once upon a time, I had hiked to the top of Plot Balsam, a 6,000-foot peak that was in the vicinity of my house, grew up in the shadow of it as eight generations of my family have. And I had just gotten to the top of the plot balsam, I'd eaten a sandwich, and I decided to go down the backside and over to Old Field Top and then up to what used to be called Jones Knob, but is now called Mount Lynn Lowry, where there's a 60-foot cross put there by General Sumter Lowry, who once upon a time lived in Florida. And while I was walking down that path, lo and behold, I looked down and I saw a cell phone. Up there on that ridge top in the middle of nowhere is a cell phone. Now, imagine my response to that looking down, and I thought, wow, all of these trees and shrubs and bushes and streams, and man, this cell phone materialized also. I immediately knew it belonged to somebody. I immediately knew that it had been manufactured by smart people who were able to do things like that. I knew that that cell phone was not there by accident. And so as we look at creation, we discern, if we have discernment, to know that the creation is not here by accident. And we realize that somebody must have made it. There is something because there is someone. The world's living in this ridiculous notion that we have something for no particular reason. We have something. We have an orderly universe because we have a creator. There is evidence of design all over it. And so we can know that there's a God, and we can know of his power as we look at creation. But we can't really know him apart from his revealing himself to us. And so that revelation of himself is his inerrant and infallible word contained in Holy Scripture. Otherwise, how could we possibly know what to believe? We can't discern it ourselves. We can't figure this out on our own. Oh, we can imagine things, and there are all kinds of people who imagine a God or gods, but not know the one true and living God. And so Jesus, in his prayer, is sounding forth this notion that he is the means by which the world knows God, and his words are the means by which truth is revealed. We can't know God apart from Christ Jesus. We may have a concept of a God, but not the one true and living God. We can't know what the truth is unless God imparts that truth to us. And he's done that in Scripture. So that we believe. We believe further that this Scripture is God's extensive communication with us. And that it's his testimony that he loves us. Wonder of wonders. 
It's one thing to know that there is a God who made all things, but to know that he loves me, that's an extraordinary thing. Have you ever stopped to think about that phrase in Scripture, God is love, and how unique that is in all of the world's literature? How profound it is that God would reveal that to us? We would be able to discern that God is powerful, that God is all-knowing and all-seeing, but, you know, to hold this whole universe together. I mean, recently, as I've made mention of it already, we've, we've seen that latest telescope out there in orbit that focused in on that one tiny speck of the universe, no larger than a grain of sand, they said, if we hold it, held it up to the sky. And we've seen those extraordinary bodies that are there just within that tiny view. And believers look at that, and we're in awe. God made that. doesn't matter how many light years across it is. It doesn't matter how vast this universe is. God is able, and he is all-powerful, and he is sustaining it all at this very moment. And he's not so distracted by all of that that he's inattentive to my needs. He loves us. And so we believe that, even in the Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 3. Yes, he loved his people, and all his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. The Lord delivering his people from bondage as if they were on eagles' wings. He loved them even before they called on him. And God has loved you before the foundation of the world. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus today, you don't have to be concerned that God's love for you had some starting point. Because if it did, it might potentially have an end point. And it doesn't. That's the wonderful thing about it. You don't ever have to pick a daisy out of the field and say, well, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves us with an everlasting love. That's revealed to us in Scripture. How could we know it otherwise? And think of how the world throws that notion around. People who otherwise reject biblical notions of God yet affirm this biblical idea that God is a loving God couldn't be known. Unless he revealed it to us. There's much we could say. But moving on to the third thing. We also must affirm as Jesus here speaks of his being glorified. As he speaks of words that he has given to his disciples through whom we also have received. After all, how do we know about this prayer? It's because John wrote it down. It's because the Holy Spirit brought to his remembrance. As Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Brought. To John's remembrance, all that Jesus had done and said so that he could record it accurately so that we might know so that the word given to the disciples has been passed to us and its authority remains. And that word is sufficient, revealing all that we need for faith and life. Now, this is one of those doctrines that gets neglected. Do you have anything that gets neglected at your house? I'm not trying to point fingers. I don't have time to tell you all the things that I neglect that I ought to take care of. I could get Kathy to offer a word of testimony, but look at the time. We need to move on. We all understand what it is to neglect things, or even if you're unwilling to admit that, perhaps you might at least be willing to say that you have been neglected at some point. This doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is neglected. We fail to reckon with the fact that God has really told us everything that we need to know about 
faith and life. Now, that doesn't mean that he's told us everything about everything. I mean, you can't read the Bible and know how to repair your lawnmower engine. That's not what I mean. But it is sufficient for faith and life. Deuteronomy, again, this time, chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, we can stop there and think, wow, I wish I knew more about that. Well, you're, neither your mind nor mine could comprehend it. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What's that passage telling us? God hasn't told us everything. He's not required to tell us everything. But the things that he has told us are important and they are significant. And then we turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And what we discern when we read further on in that chapter is that he's talking about nothing less than his word. So the point is this. I'll go back to it. He's not told us everything that there is to be told. He's not even told us everything that we might like to know, but he has told us everything that we need to know. In order that we might have life that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus. The Bible is sufficient for that. You don't need to go fishing for other things. You don't need to fall off the cliff into mysticism, you know, and say, well, maybe God will show on my fogged up shower door some great revelation. Maybe if I look into a moldy piece of bread, I'll see an image there that will get me through life. Maybe it will come in a dream. Your dreams probably come based on what you had to eat for supper the night before, not because of what God's trying to reveal to you. No, he's spoken to us in his word, and it's it's all that we need. This word is precious to us because these words are life. Think of the disciples when others were leaving Jesus, and Jesus said, Are you going to leave me also? And they said, Where else can we go? You're the only one that has the words of life. So it's not just an intellectual argument. I don't love the Bible just because it's beautiful literature. This book is life. Now, I don't worship this book. I worship the God that inspired the words that are in this book. But they point me to him. And so we have what we need to know. And that's why we're all about scripture. That's why we've got this piece of furniture up here, you know. It's not to, it's not to elevate the preacher. There's a pulpit. It's not necessary that we do. It's nowhere in the Bible that says thou shalt have a oak, an oak pulpit at the front of your sanctuary. But it's our attempt to say that that we believe that the the ministry of this word, this book, is important, that it's central to life. And Jesus spoke of the words that he gave his disciples. And then finally, and there could be many more things. I stopped at four. You know, I, I just... Trying to be a little different. You know, Presbyterians always have three points. And every once in a while, I'll throw in a fourth one just to show I'm different. You might say, well, sometimes, preacher, I hadn't discerned any point at all, but that's another matter. God's gift of his son is his supreme communication and testimony of love to us. In this written word, we see the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, not created, having always existed, 
Now, he became a human being when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but he was not created at that point. He became a human being. He had always existed. The Bible makes that clear. But he is that supreme communication. How ultimately do we know who God is and what he is like? Because God the Son has revealed him to us. That's what the word word means in John 1, 1, that communication. And again, that testimony of love. In this is love, says John in 1 John 4, 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Salvation is not the reward of the person who finally figures it out, it out and is able to work himself to the level that God says, I'll take you. No, salvation is God from eternity looking at unworthy sinners and saying, even though they have sinned against me, I will save a people to myself. And he has set his love upon us and revealed to us the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is the one who endures the wrath of God for the sake of our sins. That's what propitiation means. But that's love. Jesus Christ is love embodied. Think of all the ways in which he went about doing good. Think of those that he ministered to, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead to life. The woman with the issue of blood, Jesus was on his way somewhere else. Wasn't even, we're not even given to understand that he even knew that she was in the world. Now, there was a purpose in us reading that the way it's written. She reaches out her hand and she touches the hem of his garment and immediately that issue of blood stops. The power of God on display. He, he demonstrated God's love for her as he demonstrates it for us when we come to him and find that love manifest in the Lord Jesus. And so we, as a church, want to communicate that to the world. To be able to say that there is a God of love who has demonstrated love and mercy through Jesus. Jesus who here in John 17, when he could have been doing anything other than this, yet he is praying for his disciples. How is it that he could be facing such an agonizing moment in life? And his focus is on that ragtag bunch that's getting ready to run. Where are they going to be in a few hours? Nowhere to be seen. Peter's going to be out there around the fire saying, I tell you, I don't know him. He's even going to cuss when he says it. And where are the rest of them? Nowhere to be found. And yet, our Savior prayed for them as he prays for us. Who of us is worthy? Who of us could stand before God and say, boy, what a deal you got when you saved me? If you think that, we need to have a conversation after this service. And I might, not even, I might even need to call up some of your family and get them on speakerphone so that we all can hear. No, my brothers and sisters, it's because he loves us. And here he prayed for his disciples, demonstrating that love. You're not going to find that kind of love anywhere else. That old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. 
That's the testimony of our lives, isn't it? But when you come to Jesus, you found the genuine article. He says later on in chapter 17, verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, if you want something to captivate your thoughts for the rest of this day and the rest of the week and the rest of the year and the rest of the decade and for all eternity, you think about that for a moment. The love that the Father has for the Son in us. I understand why the Father loved the Son. The more I read about Jesus, the more I love him, the more I realize it wasn't possible for the Father to do anything but love him. He always does that which is pleasing to the Father. But when I look at my sorry face in the mirror, I have other thoughts altogether. And yet the same love that he has for the Son, he has for a sinner like me. But I want to remind you, the only way we can know that is because the Son of God has told us. And faithful servants have recorded it. And we have this treasure. And so we believe what we believe because God has told us. You don't have to have been to seminary. It can help. I don't want to denigrate what Rachel and Dr. Poland have done as of recent. I went there myself. Didn't help much, but I went. But this much you can get. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. We sing that song as children. And I'm not so sure, but what we won't be singing it in heaven. Know what you believe. Don't be another statistic that shows up for a preacher to misquote in a service. Know what the Bible teaches. No, we don't know everything we might want to know, but we know everything we need to know. And it starts right here. And may you today... Know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One who has heard the word and responded to the word and yielded your life to him who is the word. And say, where else can I go? You alone have the words of life as you trust in Jesus and in no other. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you, O Lord, and thank you for your great truth that you've revealed to us. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of having these moments to look together in this book and remind ourselves of the old, old story. It will be my theme in glory to know the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Impress it upon our hearts. Draw us irresistibly to him that in surrender and repentance through faith we might trust in your beloved now and always. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Let's stand together as we close this service and sing those wonderful words.
Receive the benediction, God's blessing as you go your way. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with and abide with you all both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.